Welcome to podcast number 17 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is September 17th, 2018, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Jerry Mitchell. Since 1989, he has been an investigative reporter for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. Jerry has unearthed documents, conjoled suspects and witnesses, and quietly pursued evidence in the nation's notorious killings from the Civil Rights era. His work has helped put four Klansmen behind bars, Brian Dela Beckwith, for the 1963 assassination of NAACP leader Medgar Evers, Imperial Wizard Sam Bowers for the ordering of a fatal firebombing of an NAACP leader Vernon Dahmer in 1966, Bobby Cherry for the 1963 bombing of a Birmingham church that killed four girls, and Edgar Ray Killen for helping organize the 1964 killings of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, popularized by the fictional movie about the case, Mrs. Mississippi Burning, starring Gene Hackman and William Defoe. For his work, Mitchell has received more than 30 national awards. In 2006, the Pulitzer Board named him a Pulitzer Prize finalist, praising him for his relentless and masterly stories on the successful prosecution of the man accused of orchestrating the killings of those three civil rights workers. After winning a prestigious George Polk Award for the second time, Mitchell received a MacArthur Genius Grant, only the second investigative reporter to ever receive the $500,000 award. And now, on to the episode. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We will explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's quite a pleasure. I appreciate it. So how are things down in uh, beautiful Jackson, Mississippi today? Well, thankfully, a little bit cooler. It's in the the 80s today, so we're grateful for that. (laughs) I'm sure it's uh, the southern summer. I uh, I have a picture-perfect day up here in Connecticut, uh, just absolutely beautiful. And as we record this, it's uh, July 20th, 2018. So, Jerry, uh, my listeners have already uh, heard your bio, a very extensive bio, by the way. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, from your opinion, or not your opinion, but from your own uh, mouth, how did you get started, and uh, and when was it that you first got started in this business? Well, I, I in terms of journalism, I uh, I got in journalism when I was in high school, um, and it appealed to me because I like to write. Um, and in terms of investigative reporting. I just have always gravitated to it. Um, I didn't necessarily consciously do it. I just think by my interest, I was driven to it. I, uh, I, it just always drove me to that. I, something that did happen that was, that was important, uh, along those lines was I, uh, read the book, All the President's Men, and I had an editor that recommended that I read that. So I, I did. I told him I'd seen the movie. He said, well, you need to read the book and, and study how they use attribution. And so Woodward and Bernstein, even though I, I I didn't meet them or talk with them, really became kind of 
important uh, mentors for me in the early days. Sure. And uh, I saw the movie too, uh, the hyperkinetic uh, Dustin Hoffman playing, uh, I think, Bernstein and uh, Robert Redford playing uh, Woodard. Um, Woodard, yeah. Uh, Woodard. So, uh, Woodford. So, Woodard. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm spelling it. I'm saying it wrong. But anyway, uh, it was a long time ago, Jer. <laughs> yeah, no. Wood, Woodward and Bernstein. That's right. So, um so you got into investigative reporting, and, and when did you start with the uh, Clarion Ledger? I started with Clarion Ledger in 86. I started um, pursuing these civil rights cold cases in 89. Okay. I uh, saw the movie Mississippi Burning, which is about, it's a fictional movie, but it's about real life happening, which was the 1964 murders of three civil rights workers in Mississippi. Um and so I saw two FBI agents who investigated that case, as well as a journalist who covered that case. And I always say that it was the beginning of my education about all of that. I, I didn't really knew almost nothing about uh, the civil rights movement, the violence connected to the civil rights movement. So that was that was really the beginning of it. Had you grown up in the South, Chair? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, so okay. And and were you growing up in Mississippi at the time? I grew up in uh, a little town called Texarkana, Texas. That's where I okay. I spent my okay. uh, my family and I moved there when we uh, when I was five years old. My dad had been in the Navy before that, and so we kind of lived all over. Uh, but then when I was five, we returned to his hometown, which is Texarkana, and okay. that's where I grew up. And uh, Mississippi Burning, that was uh, directed by Rob Reiner of All in the Family fame, if I'm not mistaken, no, correct? Uh, well, no. Actually, there are two different movies. You're talking about a different one. Um, the movie Mississippi Burning, which came out in 1998, when, pardon me, 1988, um, that was directed by, um, I think it was named in a minute, directed by a, a Parker. Uh, and so uh, Alan Parker. And so he's the one that directed that film. And Rob Reiner directed a later film, which was based on the reopening and prosecution of Byron D. LeBeck with, you know, in the Meg Rivers case. That was, that came out in 96. Okay. And Rob Reiner did direct that. Uh, my mistake for uh, right. getting uh, the movies mixed up. But um, to be energized by a movie, uh, it sounds, uh, I'm going to say, uh, like good motivation. Uh, it, <laughs> it, honestly, I mean, you can come out of a movie and you can be energized by it and you, you can find a calling, and I think you did. Uh, but it wasn't easy sledding as in, in, in back in the day. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got started with this and some of the obstacles you came across? Sure. I uh, the, Really, the, 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 that was the beginning of it. That kind of, uh, the thing I couldn't believe is that there were 20 guys involved in the killings of these, these three young men and nobody had ever been prosecuted for murder. I mean, that was kind of the thing that, you know, blew my mind. So I, uh, I, I got interested in the case and uh, literally like about a month later, uh, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. <laughs> and, and so Mississippi had something called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which, which was a state segregation spy agency. Agency. And um, it existed up until 1977. Mississippi legislature sealed like more than 132,000 pages of records for 50 years. So when I found out that those records were sealed for 50 years, my first thought was, well, there must be something in there or, you know, they wouldn't be uh, sealing them for 50 years. <laughs> 
So I began to develop sources who had access to the files. They began to leak me the files. And what they show is the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. LeBecker for the killing of Meg Revers, this other arm of the state, the Sovereignty Commission, was secretly assisting the defense trying to get Beckwith acquitted. And nobody knew that. So that story ran October the 1st, 1989. And I'm sure you made a lot of friends with that one. Yeah, yeah. And all these stories made me lots of friends. <laughs> of course, I'm being sorry. Sarcastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially early on, there were. I, I would get phone calls. I would get letters. Uh, this is before email. Um, yeah, there were a lot of people were not happy about it. So, but that, that didn't bother me. I have never been one kind of uh, driven by what people, other people think. You know, if they hate my guts, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Any threats? Oh, I have dozens. I think okay. of death threats. Uh, FBI investigated a couple of them. Um, still, uh, there were a lot of uh, anger and, and simmering under the surface for something that happened 25, I think 25, 26 years earlier, right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. And now you're coming around and uh, uh, turning the soil, so to speak, over top of it and uh, trying to find you know the evidence of what happened. So tell me more. Yeah, so I, um, as I mentioned about the Meg Rivers case, I, I kind of got interested. Well, I got interested in the records and that led me to the Meg Rivers case. And I just started digging into that. That. I at the time when I broke the story about the Meg Rivers case, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case ever being reopened and reprosecuted. But Merle Evers, who's the widow of Meg Rivers, believed and she prayed, and some amazing things happened. A couple months later, Jackson police were cleaning out a closet, having to find a box that contained the crime scene photographs of the killing of Meg Rivers, including the fingerprint of Byron D. Beckwith lifted from the murder weapon. A few months after. After that, Merle ever shared with me her copy of the court transcript that she had saved in a safety deposit box. And a few months after that, the prosecutor found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet, which sounds like I'm making it up, I know, but it really, really did happen. Was the father-in-law involved in uh, law enforcement or district attorney's office? He was a a judge. Um, Yeah, apparently, uh, you know, we don't know any of it for a fact, but apparently... At you know he he took it. It was like a suit. You know they had it on hand. The gun on hand is like uh, evidence. And at a certain point, I guess they were just getting rid of stuff. And someone uh, you know held up the gun and said, "Hey, anybody want this gun?" You know, which you know was obviously identified as the gun that killed Megger Evers, and he took it. It's a souvenir. So people can ascribe, I guess, whatever motives they want to for why he took the gun, but he did. And good thing for you. So uh, the, the court records, the uh, gun and the box, you know, that was they were cleaning out of the Jackson Police Department. Yep. Uh, how did all that start to uh, make the case? Well, the, the DA's office reopened the case and, and, and even before all that came came to the fore. And so the, it was a, a case that began to gather momentum. I um I went to interview Byron D. Beckwith. He lived in uh, Signal Mountain, Tennessee, which is just outside of Chattanooga. And we talked for six hours, something like that. It was absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. You know, inward this, inward that. And then he started on the Jews. Um, 
just horribly racy. You felt like you needed the bath after. I mean, that was kind of the way it was. Had and few, so, had a few of those interviews myself. Was was this a cold call, or did you set this up by an appointment? I set it up by appointment. Uh, in fact, I'd say in order to go talk to him, I had to pass the quiz. You know, I had uh, he asked me if I was white, where I went to church, what my parents' names were, where I grew up. I mean, where I lived, all these things. And I guess I could have refused to answer, but I knew he would like my answers. Um, you know, I'm a Southerner and, mm-hmm. you know, raised in the South and, and a very kind of conservative Christian upbringing. And so I knew he'd like my answers for the most part. I figured he would. Um, yeah. Maybe he so that's would, how it happened. Maybe he needed to hear that, not that you were, but he needed to know that you were a good old boy using that, you know, phraseology. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd say that was accurate. You okay. know, I fit, I fit the category. Good old boy. Okay. Um, so you, you've got a six-hour interview with a guy that makes your skin crawl uh, in in his house, uh, far away from home. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, what were your takeaways from that? Well, let me tell you about the end of it. So um, and this is my takeaway, I guess. <laughs> so I, I we got done, and it was dark. And he insisted on like walking me out to my car, and I'm like, really? That, that, that's okay. I, I think I could find my way to my car. And so he walked me out to my car anyway, and he got me out there and says, "If you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him." Okay, and that was his uh, farewell, my friend. Bon voyage. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and his wife had made me a sandwich, I might add. So uh, I think you can guess what I did with a sandwich. Yeah. Uh, lemonade? No, you know, uh, during the conversation in his, in his house, um, at one point, his wife brought him a drink, like something to drink, you know, cold to drink. And it looked like orange soda. Okay. Just, you know, appearance wise, it just looked like it was a clear glass. I could see it. It looked like orange soda, but the top of it, you know, I could see it was like bubbling furiously, like some kind of mad scientist potion. <laughs> huh? That's that's weird. And I was like, and of course it arose in the conversation. I was like, oh, really? What's that? And he told me what it was. It was indeed orange soda, but it also included food grade hydrogen peroxide. Uh, so he's literally drinking hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> Okay, that's uh, that's going to put a new ingredient into Mountain Dew, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's, it was wild. It was wild. So... I, anyway, uh, that those are the kinds of things I experienced in uh, going to interview Byron Dale Beckwith. Now, uh, eventually, um, the uh, prosecutor's office uh, put together enough evidence. And can you tell me the rest of the story? Yeah, he um, he was indicted. He was indicted for Meg Rivers' murder. I went and interviewed Byron Dale Beckwith in April of 1990. He was indicted for murder in December of 1990. Um, and he, he fought extradition. He lived in Tennessee. So obviously he didn't live in Mississippi. So he fought extradition. And then um, he did not realize I was the one that wrote the story that got the case reopened. Like when I went and visited him. You know, this is all pre-internet, obviously. Right. But by the time he made it, you know, was extradited back to Mississippi, he had figured it out. And uh, so and he saw me across the courtroom. He said, sit up over there. Yeah. When he dies, he's going to Africa. 
Africa. Yeah, that's where he told me I was going. So okay. I, I turned to my friend Ed and went, you know, boys wanted to go to Africa. Uh, <laughs> well, Bobby uh, Lickwith was convicted in that case okay. on the exact anniversary, or almost the exact anniversary of when he was tried 30 years earlier um, in the same courtroom. And, and when the word guilty rang out, you could hear these waves of joy as they cascaded down the hall. Uh, and it reached a foyer full of people, black and white, just erupted in cheers. And I just felt chills because what was impossible had suddenly become possible. And, uh, amazing, uh, you know, amazing sequence series of events. And, 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 and it turned out to just be the first of these cases that, that I worked on. Yeah. And, you know, so, uh, I'm thinking, Here's this young uh, investigative reporter. I don't know what I was doing 99% of the time. I will, I will, I will admit to that. I know. Uh, but were there any uh, guiding hands or any uh, mentors during that those early days that helped uh, keep you going in the right direction, like an editor that yeah. uh, made sure you didn't go off the rails? Yeah, I had um, I, I have an editor who became my editor uh, and remains my editor to this day, and her name is Debbie Skipper. And she's terrific, assistant managing editor for Clarion Ledger. And I can't say enough good things. I mean, the, the beauty of, of Debbie is I can always go to Debbie and say, hey, I'm thinking about looking at such and such. And she'll always have about three or four thoughts or ideas on what I'm getting ready to do. Um, and so she's tremendously talented and, and makes me look far better than I am. Yeah. And to this point, and we touched on it only briefly during our uh, warm up, was that um, – I've been on both sides of the aisle. I've been in law enforcement. I've been a criminal defense investigator. I've been a private investigator. Uh, I, I just don't see that sort of uh, guiding hand, not guiding hand, oversight uh, in the law enforcement community. Uh, I just see either detectives or uh, a team of detectives working a case, and I'm not seeing any fingerprints on it from a supervisor saying, well, did you check this? Did you check that? Did you make sure that the... Uh, that these other uh, alibis were, were cleared out. Did you do, you know, did you go and look at uh, the mm -hmm. video from, and this is right. new stuff now, right? You know, we didn't have video back in the day. And uh, and then certainly, Jerry, on top of that, I'm not seeing any uh, questioning by the uh, state's attorney or in other jurisdictions, the district attorney's office. It's like what goes into that arrest affidavit and goes into the those reports, the four the four corners of those reports is the gospel truth, according to that detective. And that's it. And can you just touch a little bit on it about how in your world as an investigative reporter, how the role that a, a, an editor plays in making sure that you're, you're crossing your and dotting your eyes, not only grammatically in your copy, but also in your uh, investigations. Just touch on that, please. Yes, I, I mean I, I I agree that that editors play a you know kind of having a supervisor editor what whoever it is kind of look over you, question what you're doing. I think is a tremendous value, um, and, and you need it. I know in reporting, it's it's incredibly valuable, especially investigative reporting. I think it's just and even everyday reporting, it can be valuable because. I think sometimes it's so easy to get locked in. You know what I mean? You kind of, you're, you're, you're so 
focused on some particular uh, minutia or whatever you want to call it, and an editor or supervisor can be able to say, "Hey, wait a minute." Don't don't forget you know don't forget about looking at the big picture here and 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 pointing out things that maybe you you, you haven't checked and and I think that you at least for me an investigative reporter I I can't say enough good things about uh, good editors and and Debbie has been a fantastic editor for me and, and also to that point uh, there might be the temptation for you to cut a corner or take the easy way out or to quotation marks mail it in and a quotation mm-hmm. marks but at the end of your day you have somebody that is going over your stuff with a microscope and is going to call you on your stuff immediately and is going to make sure that you keep uh, doing your best practices the way you should. Am I right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what editors are for and and good editors do that. And and Debbie's certainly done that for me. Okay. So you're not a one-hit wonder. What happens after uh, the Medgar Evers case? Uh, Tell me more about your your journey. Well, I uh, got involved with the uh, Vernon Damer case. Vernon Damer was killed by the Klan uh, back in 1960, January 10th, 1966. He and his family were attacked by the Klan. They uh, set their house on fire. He was involved in voting rights, and people in the Klan didn't like that, attacked him and his family, set the house on fire. And he basically died defending his family from, uh, the, you know, from the gunfire. And uh, and so, the anyway, that, that case... After Byron Deal Beckwith was indicted in the McGrevers case, the Vernon Damer family approached me and said, Hey, what about our father? You know, what about my husband? Um, and so I met with them and wrote a story about it. Um, and then um, not long after that, they met with the district attorney. The district attorney reopened the case, uh, you know, but got cold feet over time and just kind of lost interest in the case. And then he left office. And then another DA came in who hadn't really expressed that much interest in the case. So it looked like nothing would happen. But I got a phone call. I was literally in grad school in Ohio. And I got a telephone call from this guy who said he had information uh, about about the case and wanted to meet with me. So I flew back from Ohio to Mississippi and met with him. Um, and it was him and a buddy of his and a couple of sons of Vernon Damer. And yeah, I think a lot of folks that day had guns, uh, but, 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 but not me. So... Mm-hmm. <laughs> But he turned out he had uh, overheard Sam Bowers give the orders to kill Vernon Damer. And that's kind of then after he met with us, he met with the, the authorities, it's reopened. And, and eventually uh, Sam Bowers is, is indicted in that case. Did you ever and see? Did you ever see? 98. Go ahead. Oh, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to, because from a chronology chronology standpoint, did you ever have a chance to look at the underlying investigation or lack thereof to see what was missing and what was uh, not even involved uh, in the... I, uh, I, got, I got to look at bits and pieces of it, eventually got the FBI documents, so which gave me a little more insight. And um, the guy that was kind of the key witness back in the 1960s was a guy by the name of Billy Roy Pitts. I knew about that. Uh, he had testified, turned state's evidence, uh, basically got a life sentence uh, for for murder and then got time in federal prison, too. And so I was kind of chasing down how much time each of each of these guys got. You know, there were a few other convictions and it was kind of a joke. You know, the governor either pardoned them or commuted their sentences or whatever. And so I got to him and I was just trying to find out how much time he did in federal prison. 
prison. And so I was chasing that down. I called the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Archivist was able to dig up his old file. And what I had always heard was the reason I couldn't find any evidence of his of serving his murder sentence in, you know, life sentence in Mississippi was he'd gone to the Federal Witness Protection Program. So I talked to this archivist uh, in, in Washington who's dug up his file. And I'm saying, now, how much time did he actually spend behind bars? And she said, three and a half years. I'm like, okay. I said, well, what? And now I understand he left federal prison and went into the witness protection program. And the archivist said, that's impossible. Like, what are you talking about? So there was no federal witness protection program back then. So it turned out, you know, he had never served this guy that I'm talking about who was involved in killing Vernon Damer had never served a single day of his life sentence in Mississippi. Jeez. Okay. So, so I, so, so obviously this is a story <laughs> and, and, but I wanted to talk to the guy and I had no idea where he was. So I went on the internet. This is pretty relatively early days of the internet. And I only knew one website because I didn't know where the guy was, if he was alive, if he was dead, what was going on. So I got on this website that just you just had to have a name. You could kind of take your chances. You didn't have to have a city or state. So I did. And up it popped. His name popped up. Billy Roy Pitts had his address, Denham Springs, Louisiana, his telephone number. So I called him. First 20 minutes of the conversation went like this. How'd you find me? How'd you find me? I'm like, it's on the Internet. The Internet, I got a list of telephone number. Like, well, I guess you have to take it up with them. <laughs> yeah. But you were very nonchalant and very matter of fact. And, yeah. and you just, once you got over that hurdle, how'd the, how'd the rest of the uh, conversation go? Well, so he, he didn't want to talk. Um, really. I mean, and, but here's what happened. Uh, because of my reporting about not, you know, he hadn't served any time, Mississippi authorities issued a warrant for his arrest. Uh, and he ran. And so while he was on the run, he mailed me an audio cassette tape. And when I got it, I played it. And this is how it began. Jerry, I just thought I'd let you know you've ruined my life. But I promise if I talk to anybody, I talk to you. So here's this tape. And on this tape, he proceeds to tell me all about his involvement in killing Vernon Damer, all his involvement in all this other clan violence. So shortly after this, he turns himself into authorities. And this now leads to the arrest of Sam Bowers in May of uh, 1998. So he got arrested. May, Bowers got arrested. 32 years after the uh, yep. the burning of the building and the death of uh, that's right. the victim. Yes. That's that's a cold case. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a that's a really cold case. So uh, I know you're not shooting ducks in a barrel, Jer. I mean, it's you know these are not easy by any stretch of imagination. No, none, none of these cases are easy. They're all no. they're tough. Now, but I want to go back to something that my listeners would, would say, John, you forgot to ask Jerry. Um, you're in grad school. Are you still an employee of the, of the newspaper yeah, yeah, at yeah. this time? It was, it was, I wasn't an employee at that for just that one year, I guess you could say. And then I was back to being an employee of the Clarion Ledger. So technically I wasn't an employee at that moment. Right. But it was, but a few months later, I was again. So, well, you know, and, and for, and when I was thinking about that, you get this phone call, you're in grad school. Um, and there's no question in your mind about, well, gee, I'm in grad school. I'm pursuing my graduate degree. I'm going to go on with this information. I'm going to start. I'm going to, my career is going to, uh, take this direction, blah, blah, blah. No, you, you listen to the phone call and you get on an airplane and you go back to Mississippi and you get right back into the belly of the beast again. I mean, yep. Yep. 
So that, that to me tells me a lot too, that, you know, you were uh, committed and you were going to uh, see that case through hell or high water. So. Absolutely. So uh, now. Uh, so Bowers got convicted. He was convicted um, on August 21st, 1998 and sentenced to life in prison, just like Beckley. OK, so that's 20 years ago. So uh, tell me tell me more, as the, the investigator would say. <laughs> well, uh, the next case uh, that I got involved with was kind of accidentally. Uh, it's the Birmingham church bombing case, the one that uh, where the, the Klan bombed uh, an African. American church and and killed four girls four four girls that in that church and blinded a fifth of my dad oh yeah um, so uh, I w- after Bowers was convicted you know my editors and I decided well, let's just take a um, a look at you know kind of other other cases what other cases are authorities looking at across the United States. You know, what's the status on those, et cetera. And one of them was that one. And so I talked briefly to one of the last living suspects, whose name was Bobby Cherry. And then I guess like, I don't know, I guess it was like five months, four or five, six months later, I got an email from his wife that says, Bobby wants to talk to you. And, you know, and so as it turned out, he lived in Texas, not far from where I grew up in Texarkana. And uh, so I drove over, met him and his wife, took him out for barbecue, you know, because I guess that's what you take Klansmen out for. I'm not really sure, but we, uh, you have to understand we, the Klansman etiquette, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. That must be it. The Klansman menu and Klansman etiquette. So, uh, so we talked, and he's like, I didn't have anything to do with that church bombing. I left that sign shop at a quarter to 10 because we had to get home and watch wrestling. So he, you know, pulled up this sworn statement for this woman. Yes, I remember that night. Well, we're all sitting around watching wrestling. So the next day I was back in the newsroom and just went to our librarian, Susan Garcia. And I'm sure you remember this. Back, at least when I was young, they used to run uh, the entire television, like in the 60s. They would run the entire television schedule in the newspaper. Sure like, did. And it wouldn't, even, it wouldn't even be that big. You know what I mean? It was only like two or three channels. Right. So I remembered that. And so I just said to our librarian, uh, Susan Garcia, I said, Susan, just check with the Birmingham News and see what was on TV that night. And the next day I got an email from Susan. There was no wrestling. And there there was a sworn affidavit to watching wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) So he got arrested. Yeah, he got arrested and uh, and convicted in that case. and did, got, it, and did it open up four life uh, sentences? Four life sentences, one for each one of the girls. Right. And did he eventually talk about who his uh, uh, companions in crime were? No, he never did. Uh, I mean, he did talk to me at length. We talked for about six hours. He did talk to me at length about his involvement in the Klan and other things. He did tell me uh, about beating an African American man. Uh, but interestingly, denied another, you know, beating another one. Uh, as it turned out, he was lying. So that's another kind of fascinating aspect. Civil rights leader in Birmingham that he denied. And then I found out there was actually footage of it. So the guy's footage, 
be anyway. There's actually turned out to be footage of it, and I had his son identify him in the footage. <laughs> I found I found old footage of it. It was wild. So anyway, that is in, that's incredible. That's incredible. Now, um, uh, so your your wider net now is catching other fish. What else? What was next on the list? Uh, the next on the list was the uh, was the Mississippi burning case, and I, I had started out writing about it, and and the authorities just didn't do anything. I mean, I just wrote about it, wrote about it, and they they just kind of didn't do anything. And uh, it, you know, it was reopened, but they didn't really do anything. And and so, um, like, I got a copy of the transcript, different things like that, but I, I wasn't able to really uh, do anything. So. Uh, but like I told you before, if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. Mm-hmm. So Sam Bowers, who was the head of the head of the Klan, uh, gave this interview with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, but it was sealed. Nobody could read it until Bowers was dead. Well, Bowers never gave interviews. So, I mean, I was like, man, I want that interview. And so I began to develop sources who had access to the files, finally got somebody to leak it to me. And in that interview, Bowers told talked about the Mississippi burning case. We talked about a lot of things, but one of them was the Mississippi burning case. So and, he, uh, tell me the background he, of that a little bit. Yeah, so. I was going to say, let me explain a little more about the background on this. So this is the three civil rights workers were killed by the Klan. Bowers gave the orders for them to be killed. Uh, they were killed in Neshoba County, Mississippi. Uh, nobody had ever been tried for murder, okay? But there was a federal case. And so in the federal case, there were 18 guys that went on trial. Seven got convicted on federal conspiracy charges. And so Bowers was one of them. And so Bowers is talking about that in this interview. And he says he was quite delighted to be convicted and have the main instigator of the entire affair walk out of the courtroom a free man. And he was referring to a guy by the name of Edgar Ray Killen, or as he's known locally, Preacher Killen. So uh, so I called him up. First 20 minutes of the conversation went like this. How'd you find me? How'd you find me? I'm like, it's on the internet. Internet? I'm going to list a telephone number. I'm like, well, I guess you have to take it up with them. <laughs> oh, so anyway. So we talked. Um, and... Um, we talked for a while, and and so anyway, talked talk to Killen uh, for a while, and he anyway, I met him and his wife for catfish. I asked him what should happen to the people. He, he denied anything to do with the killings. Right. I said, well, what do you think should happen to the people that were responsible? He said, I'm not going to say they were wrong. And then he proceeds to tell me the story. When Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, at that moment in time, the FBI had no idea who did it, but. Uh, so the agents just kind of went around and, and usual suspects kind of thing, you know, went around, talked to all these various white supremacists and interviewed them about their whereabouts. Two of them showed up at the doorstep for Preacher Killen wanting to know where he was on April 4th, 1968. He refused to talk to him, but agent left his card. So time goes on. One day, Preacher Killen picks up the card, calls the FBI agent, wants to know who killed King. And the agent's like, well, why do you want to know? And Killen says, man, I want to shake his hand. Okay. So, you know, people will see these guys, these old guys, like going to trial or going off to prison, and they'll say to me, Jerry, why don't you leave these old guys alone? And what I tell them is these were young killers. They just happened to get old. Mm-hmm. That's a great line and uh, explains it. So, uh, so he so was I, convicted. So pre- he was The preacher convicted. was convicted too? Preacher Killen was convicted on the exact anniversary of those killings. Uh, June 21st in 2005. And the killings were, remind me of the date again? Uh, June 21st, 1964. So 41 years earlier. Yeah. That's over a generation. Yeah. 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 
That's that is amazing. That really is. So you know, you've you've told me over the course of our conversation about uh, catfish and barbecue and frothy uh, uh, <laughs> hydrogen. Uh, uh, yeah, that was wild. Orange juice. But you're also telling me about sitting down with these uh, now older killers. I mean, I don't yep. know if they were all killers. I mean, uh, but older uh, persons yeah. that were involved in uh, something horrific much earlier in their life. And but yeah, you're able to sit with them and talk with them. So tell me a little bit about your interview style. Tell me about how you get sure. folksy with these people and you get them to open up because look, you're a reporter. I mean, to me up in the Northeast, a reporter, you know, I'm thinking about um like you said Bernstein and Woodward. I'm thinking about somebody knocking on my door. I know that the next morning it's going to be in the newspaper. So you're the last person I'm going to talk to, Jerry. But yeah, you get six hours out of these people and yeah. uh, or more. So you, you got to tell me a little. I mean, we haven't talked about this before. So no. Uh, well, can you go pretty... backwards and look at it and say, okay, this is why I'm I'm pretty lucky at this, or this is why I'm pretty successful at this? I I, I don't. I, I mean, I guess in general, uh, I'm kind of the opposite of Mike Wallace. Maybe that's that's the uh, <laughs> in terms of approach, I guess. Um, and for was, our younger crowd, Mike Wallace was on 60 Minutes and drilled yep. people. <laughs> well, he would, you know, the kind of the typical scene you see with Mike Wallace, and and I, I uh, would be, you know, that be some guy that you know they felt like or had shown was basically guilty of something and they would and he wouldn't have agreed to an interview right uh and so then they have the tv camera on and the guy's like running or hiding his face or you know looking very guilty (laughs) in the business we'd call that an ambush interview yeah exactly and but see that doesn't appeal to me i mean i i mean there are times as a reporter you have to do those but i'm much more interested in getting in the talk Right. And so to me, that's more important. I'd, I'd rather them talk than to make them look guilty. Um, and so what I try to do is just like I've done with some of the Klansmen, is just get people to relax. Um, obviously, visiting them in their home. I have no problem with that. Now, Killen didn't want me to visit him after hour, like, you know, after, way after dark. And I, I was a little it was a little disconcerting. I knew where he lived. It lived like way out in a remote, remote area and far from where I lived. So I knew, you know, I, I just was not it was not a good situation. He wouldn't agree to it except way late. And I just thought, nah, it's OK. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, that's why I did the catfish with him. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, so I've either taken them out to eat or gone to their homes and tried to get them to talk. And here's the deal. And this is not anything revelatory, I don't think. I know. But but the truth is, everybody wants to tell their story. And so as a reporter, you 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 tap into that. You And it's not insincere. You want to hear their stories. And so that's why I sat there for six hours. I mean, it's not that everything they say up from their mouths for six hours is gold, you know. Oh, I know. It's, it's that... You you maybe you there are things within that and i had no idea when he told me he was watching wrestling that that he was lying i I didn't know that i didn't have any sense that he was lying i just it was just you know that's just being thorough uh you just because somebody tells you something a pretty good this is the way we say it in journalism i don't know what they say in the investigative world In in the journalism world uh, they tell you early on, this is the way it was in the South, we say it. Even if your mama tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> okay. 
thinking of uh, our friend Ronald Reagan from the 80s, trust but verify. Trust but verify, yeah. And, uh, no, but I, I, in talking about establishing rapport and talking, and, and you're absolutely 100% right, Chair, that uh, uh, everybody has a story to tell. And all I found in my career is that if you get out of the way of them telling their story, yes, you do that by minimizing the role that you play, by over, you know, allowing them to uh, not see what you are as an obstacle for them telling their story. Um, people will will start to slowly warm up, and uh, before you know it, yes. before you know it, you're you're on your fifth lemonade. And uh, yep. you can't. You have to get to that bathroom. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah. That's what you find. I mean, you you find people open up, and you're. I mean, I have to remind myself of this. Is is uh, when you're doing it. You know, when I'm doing an interview like that, is when I listen back to the tapes. I I, I often think, oh, I just should have been quiet there. You know, what I mean, they're so you know, it's so easy to try to want to fill that silence. I think that would be the advice I'd have for anybody out there, investigator or investigative reporter, is silence. Silence is your friend, um, you know, and so you try to minimize what you're doing and you be quiet and you let them talk. And often it's it, that's the best approach. And I and I've tried my best not to interrupt you a few times, Jerry. Oh, no, you're you're I'm not talking about you. I know. I know you are. But I, I what I'm saying is. It's and not interrupting the person when they're talking. You let mm-hmm. them talk. You let them finish their thought. You let them finish their statement. You let them finish what they were telling you because what you have to say is not important or even consequential to what they have to say. When you read your tapes, you know, you read your transcripts or your tapes later mm-hmm. on or listen to them later on, you say, oh, I didn't really need to really ask, ask that question anyway then. You know, I should have just let the guy keep talking mm-hmm. or keep the, let the lady keep talking. So, Chair, I mean, uh, we're going to have to have another uh, session. That's all there is to it. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, That's fine. I know. Thank you, sir. But um, there is one thing that I want to ask you about. Um, you have a memoir that's going to be coming out, right? Can yes. You te- can you tell me a little bit about this so that we can tease our listeners so that when it does come out, uh, I, we can talk and talk sure. about your memoir a little bit. So, yeah, go ahead. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, uh, the memoir is called uh, Race Against Time. It's for Simon Schuster. Uh, hopefully be out in the next Next year and a half. Okay. And it's essentially, I mean, some of these stories that, that I mentioned today, or cases I talked about, they're going to be in the book. And, um, just kind of, you know, it's a, it's just, you know, as I, I kind of put it to friends, it's just kind of stories of me chasing the bad guys. I don't know how else to put it. And just, you know, I hopefully give people insight into these cases and kind of the broader context of, of why these happened and, and, um, and hopefully too instructive for the present as well. Well, at this podcast, we're all about that. As you know, uh, we want to, uh, give inspiration, uh, and information about, uh, good investigations, and hopefully we can do it in an entertaining manner. I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Race Against Time come out, uh, and in that uh, run-up to the, the publication date, uh, I'm sure that Simon & Schuster will have some kind of a pre-order thing, and uh, yeah. my, my listenership can jump on that bandwagon and, and do that Absolutely. for you. I appreciate that. Oh, you're Thank welcome. You. This is uh, this has been wonderful. I appreciate it. I, I look forward to uh, talking with you again. That's a promise. And you got a friend up here in Connecticut if you ever oh, need something. Okay. I appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is Joe Koenig. Joe is a retired inspector from the Michigan State Police after 26 years. He's also worked for more than 10 years in the banking and insurance sectors. Since 2005, he has owned and operated KMI Investigations, focusing on financial investigations. He is a certified fraud examiner and an author holding a BS degree in accounting from Wayne State University and a master's in public administration from Eastern Michigan University. He is the author of several articles and an award-winning book titled Getting the Truth, published in 2014. And he is a much sought-after speaker on how to discover the real message, distinguishing truth from deception, and how to sculpt questions to get the truth. Our circle around the campfire continues to grow by leaps and bounds. I thank you for telling your friends and leaving reviews on your favorite podcast app. FYI, each episode takes around five hours to research, interview, edit, format, and produce, as well as share. Then there are the expenses to air the shows. I love these podcasts, and your ongoing support is appreciated. You can support the show for less than a couple of coffees a month at patreon.com forward slash my favorite detective stories. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash my favorite detective stories. All one word. You will receive all the stories and just the stories from my guests. But wait, there is more. Each guest has given me a second story exclusively for Patreon subscribers. Help me bring to you my favorite detective stories. <laughs>